We are continuing in this series in the the last few weeks of this series on the family of God, the community of faith. There have been so many wonderful things that God has taught us throughout this series. Foundationally, a, a continued call to abide in Christ. I think we'll see that again today. I prayed that a moment ago, but it needs to be real for us that we remember that everything that we're doing and the call that we have to love one another and to mutually care for one another in the church, it starts with our love for Christ. There is a first great commandment and a second great commandment. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love one another as Christ has loved you. You cannot reverse those. We cannot try to love one another and live in the church without abiding. Without a deep and desperate love for Jesus. But when we are abiding in Christ and we have that love for Jesus, then we are equipped and ready to serve and care and love for one another. We are reminded that we are our brothers and sisters' keeper. That we are responsible to one another to exhort one another to mature faith. We are reminded that we need one another. That we are to gather together because we are literal means of grace from God in one another's lives. We are a mechanism by which He supplies grace to people in the church. And so we need to come together. We need to gather on the Lord's Day in worship. We need to gather in small groups when we have opportunities. We need to exhort one another and be together. We are to partner together. Every person in this room, if you belong to Christ, you have a particular mission, a particular calling from God to make Christ known in a unique way. But you need the people around you in your church to exhort you to that call and to partner with you in it and provide help to you. So we should have those kinds of conversations in the church. What is God calling you to right now? How can I help? How can I pray for you? How can I assist? With that, we're to give generously to one another. We should, all of us in this room, make allowances in our budget of time and in our budget of energy to serve one another and to help one another. And we should be generous to one another in that, including generous in our finances to meet one another's needs and to share in common giving in the church to see the mission of God moving forward. And we express our mutual care for one another through the giving of spiritual gifts. And that's where we landed last week. That's where we're continuing today. How we care for one another by the giving and the receiving of spiritual gifts. If you haven't heard the message from last week, I urge you to listen to that that Sam preached. If you did listen, I I urge you to go back and go through it again. It was a strong and thorough look at spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There was a lot of pastoral wisdom there and how we use the gifts. Today is, is kind of a part two of that, but it's a little bit different because today is not going to be so much teaching about gifts as it's going to be an exhortation to use your gifts. An exhortation for you to be involved in the church and in one another's lives operating in your gifts. Discovering them and developing them together. That's the exhortation. And it's coming today from 1 Peter 4. 
Now, if you have been here for a while, you, you may remember we studied First and Second Peter back in 2021. I want to remind you of a little bit of context there. A little bit of context in these letters that Peter is writing in the New Testament. This is several decades after the resurrection of Jesus. It is probably just within two to three years of Peter's death. And he is writing to the church. He is an apostle, an eyewitness to the sufferings of Jesus. He was close to Jesus. He saw his life. He saw his death. He saw his resurrection. And God has made him a pastor, an elder in the church. And so he is writing to churches in what is modern day Turkey. He is writing to those churches as a pastor with a pastor's heart. And he is writing to churches who are living in a time of increased hostility toward Christians. In that day, there was an increase in the hostility toward believers. The citizens of Rome were more and more and more suspicious of Christians and Christianity. And they were beginning to feel persecution throughout the Roman Empire. And so Peter is writing in that context. And there's a bunch of themes that we see in these letters, but you're going to see you're going to see those themes just in this small snippet of 1 Peter that we look at this morning. The theme of how God has worked for His people through Jesus. Anytime someone tells you that all religions are basically the same, Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches that the God of that religion works for His people. He serves His people. He has served us through Jesus. That's a big theme for Peter. Another one is that we are to pursue holiness. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are to pursue holiness. Not to become holy in our own power, but because of our sanctification, our justification in Christ, that we are to live lives of holiness. And because Peter is writing to a church that is in confusion and pressure from the world around them, not only to conform to what they're doing, but also to just be quiet about Christianity. He writes to them how they should live as a church in a fallen world. He reminds them they are resident aliens, which means they are sojourners. This is not their home. They are working their way, just like all of you today. If you are in Christ, you are working your way toward your actual home. You are aliens. You're living in a foreign land. The kingdom of the earth, the kingdom of man is not your home. But you do reside here. You're a resident alien. You are not called by God to flee into isolation until Christ returns. You are called to be an ambassador for Jesus and to point people to the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter is writing with these things in mind. Exhortations to live as believers in a fallen world. And what I want you to look for today is this. We're going to look at some commands of Peter that really have nothing to do with spiritual gifts, but then we're going to see how he commands the church to use their gifts in the same way that he commands the church to look to Jesus and live lives of holiness. And the reason I want you to see that is because sometimes when it comes to spiritual gifts, we have the mindset that it's not that important or it's not required. It's kind of good if you find your gift and you use it. That's sometimes our mentality. But Peter is going to line up the commands to use your gift to equip the church and for the glory of God 
the same as He is going to command you to holiness and to look to Jesus. It's just as much a command to use your gift for the good of the church and the glory of God as it is for you to live lives of holiness. I want you to see that today in this passage. So if you're a note taker, if you want to grab the notes in the worship guide, if you enjoy filling the blanks, and as Kevin's already mentioned, there's some Bibles on the back table. If you do not have one, please pick one up as our gift to you. If you are ministering to someone in your life, if you're talking to them and you would like to gift them with a Bible, you are welcome to take one of those and give it to them as well. So Peter's exhortation from 1 Peter chapter 4 to live as believers in a fallen world. What is his exhortation? Number one, he exhorts us to daily, continually look to Jesus the Christ. Look to Jesus. I use that phrase, that terminology, intentionally. Jesus, Yeshua, that's His name. He is the Christ. Christ is not His last name, it is who He is. He is the Messiah. Some people may believe in Jesus, they may not believe He is the Christ, but He is. And Peter's exhortation to us is daily, continual, looking to Jesus the Christ. So let's start 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's look at the first two verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The directive there is this, as Christians, no matter when you became a Christian, the idea is that when you come to know Christ for the rest of your life, you're not going to live for your human passions. You're going to live for the will of God. You're going to die to yourself often. Because you are going to want to go one way and do certain things and respond to people in a certain way and do certain things with your money and your time and live in the way that just you feel you should live, you're going to want to do that. And you're going to have a world that's going to say, yeah, do that. Follow your heart. Trust your feelings. And the Bible says that's a really, really bad way to live as a Christian is incongruent with the Christian life. Because if you are a Christ follower, here's where Jesus is going. The will of God. You follow a man who died to himself, died on a cross in order to fulfill the will of God. Therefore, if you're following Jesus, you can't say, I'm going to follow Christ and live to my passions. Those things don't work. But how do we get there? Religion would say, try harder. Do the right things. Go to the Bible. Make a list of do's and don'ts. But what Peter is encouraging us toward and what we've been talking about over and over when we talk about abiding is the way that we start this journey of dying to ourselves and to our passions and to our feelings and living for the will of God as we look to Jesus. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, what does that mean? Jesus came in human form, in humanity, and He suffered. How did Jesus suffer? He became poor that others might become rich. He suffered through sorrow and poverty. He suffered persecution. He suffered public ridicule. He was not everyone's best friend. He spoke hard words, truthful words. He loved people well, but He told them the truth. And sometimes they were drawn to Him and sometimes they fled from Him. He suffered on a cross. He suffered temptation from sin, but He never gave in to sin. But He suffered on the cross because He became our substitute. He received the punishment, the wrath of God. He died for sin. Not for His own sin, but for our sin. And so now, because Christ has suffered in that way, you arm yourself with that same way of thinking. Put on the mind of Christ. Take up that same idea. What is the idea? That you would be willing to suffer ridicule and shame and poverty. You'd be willing to suffer death to self so that you might live for the will of God. And he has a very interesting phrase here. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? All humanity suffers in the flesh, but all of humanity has not ceased from sin. So he's obviously not talking about general human suffering. He's talking about the specific suffering that we just mentioned that Christ did. Suffering for the will of God. Suffering, becoming poor that others might become rich. So he's talking about the Christian experience that as we abide with Christ, we will live as Christ did. This puts a death knell in the gospel of prosperity that the point of Christ and becoming a Christian is to prosper in health and wealth. If God gives you those things, praise Him for that. If God gives you those things and ask for them, if He gives you those things, use them for His glory. But that's not the point of what Christ came for. Not in this life. He came in this life to be poor, that others might become rich, and then you arm yourself with that same way of thinking. I'm willing to give up my time and my energy and my talents and even my money that other people might be strengthened. That's the kind of suffering. But if he's talking about us, what does it mean that we have ceased from sin? Because if you are a Christian in this room, and I was to say, raise your hand if you have ceased from sin, right? you've stopped sinning, we wouldn't be able to raise our hand in integrity. What does it mean that we've ceased from sin? It's not that, that we are now perfect and that we won't sin in this life. It is that because Christ died for sin, we now consider ourselves dead to sin. That's the picture. That is dead to me. That's how I view it. Lust I view myself dead to that. Criticism and gossip, I consider myself dead to that. Sexual immorality, I consider myself dead to that. 
drunkenness and living for my passions, I consider myself dead to that. Does that mean we're not going to be tempted by it? No, we will. Does it mean we're not going to fall sometimes? No, we will. But it means that the general thought of our life is, I am dead to those things. As much as my human heart and passion may want those things, I'm dead to them. Why? Because Christ died for sin, and I am with Christ, and so now I consider myself dead to sin. Not in my own power, but by looking to Jesus always. And that's in your notes why we keep talking about abiding. In your notes, ask of Jesus and receive from Jesus. It's the picture of abiding. Asking Him continually, not not just for things, that's not what I mean there, but for His life. If you're tempted, stop and ask Jesus for His steadfast faithfulness. If you want to criticize and gossip about someone, stop and ask Jesus to give you the power to bless that person. If you want to lie to get out of trouble, stop and ask Him to help you to be bold in the truth. If you're tempted to sin and immorality, ask Him to help you to kill the sin and trust that He will answer and you will receive from Him. And do that continually. That's abiding. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, to please God. And then it goes on to describe faith. I've given you this this verse many times. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. When you step toward abiding in Christ, you are saying, I believe, Jesus, that You exist and I believe You will reward me when I seek You. Not with just temporal, worldly stuff that's going to burn but with the riches of the kingdom of God and the character of Christ in my life. And Jesus will not turn you away. So Romans 13 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How do you make no provision for the flesh? How do you arm yourself with the same way of thinking you put on Jesus Ask and receive from Jesus every day. That's Paul's first exhortation. And then he continues on in your notes. We should express our identity through our holiness. Express your identity through your holiness. This is a summary for me of the next exhortation from Peter. What's our identity? A Christ follower. If you're bold enough to say that, I am a Christian. That's, that's If you're bold enough to say that, not just I go to church, not just I believe in God, but you are bold enough to say, I follow Jesus the Christ. Someone says, what's your religion? I follow Jesus the Christ. If you're bold enough to say that as your identity, then that identity speaks into how you are to live. And part of how you are to live is a striving after holiness. Now holiness means to be set apart and dedicated for the glory of God. It doesn't simply mean not sin, although that's part of 
It's part of it. From verse 1 and 2, consider yourself dead to sin. But holiness, there were instruments, there were bowls and cups in the Old Testament that were considered holy. Why? Because they were set apart and dedicated to God. Holiness is being set apart and dedicated to God and His glory. I almost started laughing because I heard Kevin finishing lines to songs when I said holiness is. He did that Wednesday night. If you're a fan of that 90's song, you know what's in your head right now. We're going to keep going. Let's look at verses 3-6. through Peter says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter says, the time that is passed in your life is enough to do what people who are not Christians do. Christians, people who are not Christians, they live by their passions. What we said a moment ago. They live by how, how they feel. However they feel, that's what they do. They live by their heart. They live by whatever their mind and body desires. And Peter says, if you're a believer, you're dead to that. Consider the, the time that you lived in that not to be something that you long for, but to be something you look back on and you're glad you're not in that anymore and you're done with it. And he talks about sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's giving examples. Passions there literally mean violent passions. When you follow after the passions of your flesh and it harms you and harms others. And there's some big picture items here. He focuses in on sensuality, which is combined in Romans with sexual immorality. A sexual ethic that is anything except one man, one woman, joined together in marriage and experiencing the gift of intimacy in that marriage. Anything apart from that picture the Bible considers to be sexual immorality. And says, if you are a Christian, you are dead to that. We have a world today that doesn't like that. Doesn't like that idea of saying this is what sexual immorality is. We also have a world that is wanting to redefine what that is, even to drag the Bible into that and say the Bible is okay with all other forms or many other different forms of sexual ethics the Bible is very clear. Anything outside of that picture is a sin. He also focuses on drinking to excess, over drinking, not being sober minded. He says it's enough. Getting together with other people to have parties, to do those kinds of things, that's enough. That's how the world lives. And then he says, look. Here's what's going to happen. 
And I want you to see it's happening in the first century and it's happening today. Number one, people are going to be surprised when you don't do those things anymore. They're going to be surprised because they knew you in that old way of life and they're going to be surprised that you've given that up. And there's going to be a world that's going to be surprised that you don't join in those things. That you say those things are wrong. But then he says, not only will they be surprised, but they will malign you. It won't be enough for them to just be surprised you don't do that. They will insult you for not doing that. They will slander you for not doing that. They will misrepresent you for not doing that. They will assassinate your character for not agreeing with them. It's not enough for the kingdom of the world that believers simply abstain from those things. They demand that believers agree with them. And Peter says, that's going to happen. Be ready for it. And then he says, but you need to remember, there is a judge. And they will be judged by God. Who judges the living and the dead, which means just because you are alive doesn't mean you're safe from the judgment of God outside of Christ. And just because someone has died doesn't mean they've escaped His judgment. He will judge the living and the dead. And then He gives this kind of mysterious verse. This is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead. I don't think He's talking there about the sending of Christ into a place of Hades to preach and proclaim victory. I think what he's saying there is that people who are even now dead had the gospel preached to them and therefore they are alive. They're dead now, but when they were alive, the gospel was preached to them. And so someone might say, well, if they believed the gospel, why did they die? Why were they seemingly judged and Peter says, although they may be dead now, they suffer judgment in the flesh because the judgment against sin is death. But, if they have heard the Gospel, they might still live in the Spirit the way God does. It's the picture. And so we are called to express our identity through holiness. Through being dedicated to God through hearing the Gospel and sharing the Gospel with others and believing that even though we may suffer in this life and eventually die because of the fall of man, we will live when we believe in Jesus. And I'll put in your notes because I felt it was important to stress this. This idea of being holy, this is not an adversarial position toward the world but rather it is one that seeks their good. The idea about being holy is not for us to have this idea that we're better than other people. And just because you are striving to live a holy life doesn't mean that you hate the world. It means that you love the world the way Christ did. Was Jesus holy? Yes. Did Jesus love the world? Yes. Did Jesus love sinners? Yes. 
Did sinners want to spend time with Jesus? Yes. Did Jesus hide His holiness to get people who were sinners to spend time with Him? No. They were drawn to Him because of that. Now look, did some flee Him? Absolutely. When you strive to live a holy life, there will be people who will flee you. It will happen. But there will also be people who will be drawn. They will be drawn to what they see in you. My point in all that is don't give in to the lie that striving for holiness is hatred toward people in the world. Striving toward holiness and showing people a picture of Jesus is a way in which we love the world. So Peter exhorts the church, look to Jesus, express your identity through holiness, and then he turns to give some instructions to the church. First of all, I'll briefly deal with verse 7, 8, and 9. He says the end of all things is at hand. So he's turning his instructions toward how now we live in the church together. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I just want you to note there, the goal is to pray. He's saying be sober-minded. Don't give in to drunkenness. Don't give in to sensuality. Be self-controlled. Keep yourself from the passions of the world. Why? So that you're ready to pray. So that you're ready to abide in prayer. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love each other. And as you love each other, sin will be not covered up, but it will be overcome by your love. As one pastor put it, when, when a church is earnestly loving one another, sometimes they won't even see one another's transgressions. They will love each other so much that they won't even notice offenses. If you're looking for those, you will find them. But when we love one another, we will cover over a multitude of sins. We will forgive one another. We will overlook one another's faults and offenses. And show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Be kind. Open up your homes to one another. Do so without Anger and grumbling, feeling like you have to do this, but no, you get to do this because God has given you a home to open up. And then we get to verse 10. So in your notes, this is the instruction to the church for today. Every week I've been trying to give you one instruction. Be faithful and courageous with God's gifts of divine power that have been entrusted to you. Be faithful and courageous with God's gifts of divine power entrusted to you. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, he's talking about Christians, and what he is saying there is, yes, indeed, each one of you has received a gift. So as you have received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Again, I want you to see this instruction is given with as much command as the ones that we've seen to look to Jesus and to be holy. And Peter kind of draws a line in the sand for us when he says, be good stewards 
of the gifts you've received, of God's varied grace. Sam really covered this last week, that there are various gifts, there are various ways to serve in the church. Gift here is charisma. It means a divine enablement, a gift of God's divine power. Everybody, just make eye contact with me for a second. If you're a believer, you have been given a gift, a divine enablement of the power of God. Don't let that be a small thing to you. That God has opened up the riches of His kingdom and He has called you by name and said, look to Jesus. I have saved you. I have rescued you from your sin. And now here is a portion of my power I am giving to you for the sake of my glory and the good of my people. Now go use that. You have a gift in Christ or the Bible is a liar. Don't be falsely humble and say, well, I just don't know if I have one. The Bible says you do. You have a spiritual gift. You may have more than one in your lifetime. But you have at least one. And he says, be a good steward of God's grace. Now there's a couple of ways to not be a good steward. One would be if God gives you a gift of His divine enablement and His power. And as Sam pointed out last week, having that gift and operating in it doesn't mean you're a mature Christian. And in your thinking, it might be, it's really cool that I have this gift, and my gift is one to maybe teach, and so I can make a big deal out of myself now. I can get people to look at me. I can get a following. That would not be a wise steward of that gift. That would be a foolish servant. But, let me tell you how I think we most often are not wise and good stewards. We simply hoard our gift. If God has given you a spiritual gift and you fail to engage with your church and use that gift, you are not a good student. And I'm not being helpful to you if I don't say that. That doesn't mean you're always going to know exactly what to do at any given moment with that gift. But if you allow yourself to be distracted by the world, disengaged from the church, disengaged from the gathering of the believers, and you take your gift and you stay home with it, or when you come to the gathering of the believers, you don't engage with people. You don't use that gift for the good and the building up of the body. It is not what Peter is referring to when he says, be good stewards. He has given you that gift for a reason. Which is why I use the word be faithful with your gift. This is the big point of today. Sam taught you 
about gifts and what they are and how to think about them. I am simply saying, use it. Use your gift. Be faithful with your gift. Don't give in to things to say, well, my gift's not that important. I'm not a teacher. My gift isn't out front preaching. My gift isn't visible. Remember the picture of the body? We're all different members. We're all different parts of that body, but we all have a calling. We all have a purpose. We, we all support and strengthen the church. Be a good steward of God's grace. Don't assume if you don't use your gift, someone else will take care of it. You may be the only person in your local church who has the gift you have. Or you may be the only person in your church that is designed by God to use that gift in a particular way. And if you fail to use that gift, the church will be hurt. The church will suffer. Guys, I know we have to live lives in this world. That's why Peter said you're resident aliens. we got to go to work. we got to make a living. We have responsibilities. But I want to go back to what Rob said at the beginning. If your life is so busy, you have no time to gather with your church and engage them with your gift, God did not make you that busy. That is not by His design. That is by us getting trampled over and caught up in the weeds of the world. It may be because we don't trust Him enough to provide what we need if we give ourselves to have an allowance and a budget in our time and our energy to serve Him and serve His people. It's not just about being faithful, though. It's also about being courageous because I know that some of us, we have a gift We want to serve. We want to be good stewards. We don't want to sit down and not serve the church. But we're scared. If we would really admit it, we're worried. What if I do it wrong? What if if I mess this up? And that's where we need boldness. We need courage. God who entrusted you with that gift will not leave you alone in using that gift if you will continually look to Jesus. Which is why... With this last note, I want to go back a little bit to what Sam taught us last week. Discover and develop your gifts through abiding with Christ as you serve your church. Discover and develop your gifts through abiding with Christ as you serve your church. Now, Sam had three of these last week. It was discover, develop, and disciple. But I'm going to focus on these two. One of the biggest questions people ask is, how do I know what my gift is? And yes, one of the most common answers you will get is to go take a spiritual gifts test. You can find them online. I'm not telling you that's not helpful or that's wrong or anything like that. I am going to tell you I don't think that's the best way. If you come and ask me as a pastor, as your pastor, how do I discover my gift? I'm going to say this. Abide with Jesus and serve. Where do I serve? Wherever you see the opportunity and you feel led. 
What if that's not my gift? You will figure that out pretty quickly. And so will everybody else around you. If you say, I'm called to be a leader, and one day you realize no one's following you, that may not be your calling. But you have a calling. If you say, well, I, I, think, my, I think my gift is you know, mercy. And you discover I'm really never able to be merciful to anybody. That may not be it. It is, it is not go take a test, get told this is my gift, and then wait for a spot in the church to open up that fits that gift. Go serve. Go serve. When I came here and, and the Lord started working in mine and Allison's life and we were, we were just trying to get close to Jesus, I, I didn't know what I should do. I, I didn't know what it was that I was supposed to do. And then one day they, they said, we need a helper for our children's choir. And I was like, well, okay, I can probably do that. So I came up here on Sunday evenings at 5 o'clock and I assisted the person leading the children's choir. And that was how I started serving. And somehow, from standing in that back room back there, and teaching kids lyrics and how to do motions to songs, today, and there, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not belittling that. I'm just saying, that was what I did. And if God had left me there, and that was my calling of helps and service, I would have bore a lot of fruit in that. But that wasn't His plan. And so what I'm doing today started there. But this is not, this is not advancement like it is in the world. It's not start here so you can get here. It's start here so you can discover how God has gifted you. You will discover it as you serve. And as you abide with Jesus. Constantly go back to Christ. Every day. Give me your kingdom. Give me your life. Give me chances to serve. Show me what to do. And He will lead you. And then look for opportunities in the church and get involved. Speak with others in community. If you think you have an idea of what your gift may be, share that with someone. So they can pray for you. You will discover and then develop your gifts as you abide with Christ and serve in your church. When you figure out what your gift is and you are serving in it, you're not done. Because you will develop in that gift. As your church matures, you are going to need to mature in that gift because that gift will need to increase as the church is increasing in godliness and righteousness. So you keep developing your gift by staying close to Jesus and serving where He gives you the opportunities to serve and listening for His voice. Jesus said in John 5, verse 19, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. This is when He was on the earth. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. You understand, Jesus is God. When He was on the earth, He's the Son of God. But He still said, I'm abiding with My Father and doing what I see My Father doing. Jesus was completing the will of God 
by staying close to his father. He said in John 12, I've not spoken on my own authority, although he could have as God's son. But the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Okay. If you are putting on the life of Christ, and if Christ discovered the will of God, knowing what to say and what to do by staying close to the Father, then won't you, won't you know what to do and what to say with your gifts if you stay close to Christ? And the answer is yes. So let's end in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Peter takes all the gifts and he puts them in two categories. And this is a summary that he's doing. But he puts them here in two categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. You could kind of think about some of those things. Teaching, exhortation, prophecy, tongues, the utterance of wisdom, knowledge, interpretation of tongues, evangelism, shepherding, all speaking gifts. And then there are serving gifts. Giving, generosity, leadership, mercy, faith, miracles, discernment, helps, administration, faith, all serving gifts. But here's what Peter says. If you have a speaking gift, Do not use that gift to utter your own opinion. You are to speak as one speaking the words of God. You will only be able to do that if the word of God is in you. And you're abiding in Christ. So that when you use your gift, the word will come out of you. If you have a serving gift, you don't serve in your own power with His strength. You will only be able to serve in your gift if you are staying close to Christ and asking Him for His help and His energy and His power. You are not to do this on your own, but you are to do it in reliance on Jesus so that God is glorified in Christ. That's the goal. So agape, be faithful, be courageous to use your gift. Eagerly desire to know your gift and then get to work using it. A few weeks ago, Josh shared something with me after the sermon that we did on the body of Christ. Where we talked about there are different parts of the body, but we all work together. I'm going to read you what he sent me. I don't read you everything Josh sends me. Some of it's nonsense. Not about, not about theological things, but about worldly things. But when Josh... Josh at times will come and say, I I, I felt a strong sense from the Lord. And I have found that God works through Josh in that way. So I'm going to read you what he said. Courage is an essential trait for members of the body. If you're a nose, it is critical that you speak up when you smell smoke. No one else in that congregation may be a nose and the body may not understand what you are perceiving at first, but your warning is no less needful. What does the body miss out on because of lack of courage by some of us to act on our giftedness and our unique calling? Agape. 
Be faithful. Be courageous. Get to work. Abiding with Jesus. Putting on His life. And using your gifts to serve.